There's perhaps no more stereotypical image of science run amok than Frankenstein's monster, created by a man who manipulates life without regard to the ethical consequences. And there's certainly no field of science more likely to evoke that stereotype than biotechnology. Biotech researchers combine cells from human and non-human species, known as chimeras. They also work with induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPS cells, which can transform into any other cell type in the body, potentially even into viable human embryos. You can see where the concerns come in. Insu Hyun, the director of research ethics at the Harvard Medical School Center for Bioethics, and a professor of bioethics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, works to dispel many of the myths about biotechnology and to develop standards for doing research in a scientifically productive but responsible way. I'm Corey S. Powell, Special Issue Editor at American Scientist. I spoke with Dr. Hyun about lessons from past controversies and about the potentials and concerns that lie ahead. This interview has been edited for length and for clarity. What to you are the most pressing bioethics issues right now? So what, what you see is the most pressing ones and why, why those in particular? Yeah, well, there, there are so many pressing issues in bioethics because bioethics is such a broad field. Um, so obviously right now, you know, issues at the forefront are, have to do with pandemic-related responses. But in my particular little corner of bioethics, uh, I deal with new biotechnologies. And the most pressing issues for new biotechnologies is the fact that there's been recently an enormous explosion of new research entities that don't fit neatly under previous categories of research ethics. What we're dealing with now are entities that don't have a clear analog in nature. And here we could talk about embryo models that are stem cell based, organ models. You know, we have chimeric animals, which are animals that have uh, human cells transferred into them and kind of recapitulate little elements of human biology. So we have a lot of like blurred categories at this point. So that raises a couple of questions. Some of them are really sort of on the ground, practical research questions and oversight questions about what committee is supposed to review this work and what kinds of questions do they ask and what counts as approval or disapproval. To the more philosophical issues of what's the moral status of these things that we're creating that are quasi-human. Um, and so that's been kind of like a really, I wouldn't say it's pressing in the sense that like the COVID response is pressing, right? But it's pressing in terms of um, getting a clear picture of what science needs to clarify to move forward responsibly, both kind of, you know, what are the limits of what researchers should be allowed to do? They want to know these uh, answers as well. They want to know kind of, you know, what's the playing field? Like how much leeway do they have and what they can create and, and what they can do with them? And then of course, you know, uh, universities, institutions, there needs to be some system of oversight and, and care taken and, you know, in knowing what's going on in the institution and, and allowing that all the way to the broader public, you know, whenever the public hears about these things, you know, pigs with human cells in the brain, the public starts to raise questions too. So we have different levels of kind of urgency here. We have the urgency of the researchers wanting to know, like, can anybody provide some guidance for us so that we can kind of do our work without worrying too much about, you know, boundaries. And then, you know, there needs to be kind of an important element of sort of public communication because science always needs public support. Uh, if you get overreaction and you let imaginations run wild, that could lead to restrictive policies that could actually prematurely 
truncate the field and progress in the field. So none of this stuff is like urgent on the level of it's life and death, (laughs) but, but, but there definitely needs to be people, there need to be people thinking about these things because, um, you know, science, otherwise we're at risk of science or proceeding without any guardrails and loss of public trust. Sure. Well, as a pragmatic consideration, how do you decide how far into the future you're looking? Uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the further ahead you look, the further you look into speculative possibilities, the broader the, the ethical concerns are, but also the less well-defined. So you want to anticipate problems, but you don't want to look too far ahead. How do you, how do, how do you gauge what is, you know, what is an appropriate horizon yeah. to look at for what you do? Yeah, I, I typically like to go in increments of five years <laughs> because the science moves pretty quickly. But if, you know, you can get so far ahead of the science and worry about possible but not probable scenarios in the future that you end up, you know, um, going too far in overreaction sort of truncating the science. So let me give you an example. Back in the day in 1998, when Dolly the sheep was first cloned using nuclear transfer, you know, using an unfertilized egg. So we got this birth of this cloned sheep. People freaked out, right? And and, and there immediately there were moves in some countries to outlaw any kind of human cloning very broadly defined. Well, what they didn't realize and what really nobody realized was it was not that simple to go from the sheep model to human cloning. For primate cloning, for monkeys, it took, it took a long time to get that figured out, how to actually make cloned non-human primate um, offspring, I suppose, from the cloning procedure. So it wasn't like it was going to happen the next year or the next day that you could possibly get human cloning if somebody went rogue and just used human cells. But people imagined that it would be just a matter of time in the short short term to get that. So there were lots of restrictive, like ill-defined policies uh, that would ban any kind of human cloning, which would include like under the broad definition, research cloning for for basic research purposes. Um, And that was, you know, potentially harmful to do that. So I think five years is a good increment. Did did that actually have a negative impact on on cloning research? I mean, did did that have scientific impact? In reality, it didn't really stop progress because Progress was stopped because there was no access to human eggs, not enough access. But if that wasn't there, then it, yeah, of course it would have hindered progress and kind of the, the, the basic science level of understanding cell reprogramming. We were only looking at five years because because if you try to you know determine guidelines based on what you think could happen, you don't actually know if those scenarios are even possible. Right. And at the same time, you might truncate the research to kind of like, you know, restrict freedom of exploration to the level that you don't actually find these serendipitous, nice accidental discoveries along the way. Can you talk just briefly about what do people hope to achieve in Chimera research? So there, I I would say there, there are a range of goals for Chimera research. And on one side, you have people who are really interested in human development and they really want to know how do different systems form, right? So that's one big area, it's just developmental biology. Then you get this other branch, which is a little bit more persuasive to the public, which is preclinical testing of some kind of cell biologic, stem cell-based human biologic, some replacement cell therapy, whether it's for the eye or for the heart. And so before you go to human clinical trials, you'll wanna do animal testing of your biologic. And that technically is also chimera research, but I think that's a little bit more along the lines of what people are used to hearing about. Animal research and testing first before you go to human clinical trials, whatever the investigational product is. Is it a drug? Is it a biologic? Uh, And then you have like really kind of idealistic pie in the sky, but very compelling aspirations to trying to grow replacement tissues within animals. So, you know, 
researchers don't know how to grow a fully functioning human heart in vitro, but they know that nature somehow knows how to do it within a body in development. So why don't we just let nature build it almost like a, like a nature, you know, animal body, like 3d printer to kind of do what we don't know how to do. So the idea there is to, you know, eventually work up to a, a world where we have livestock animals that at the embryo stage have their ability to make an organ knocked out, let's say a heart or a pancreas, and then you supplement that, you rescue that ability using human stem cells that are targeted to just make that organ. And so then the, the pie in the sky idea is you could have a host of various, you know, livestock animals, pigs, sheep, that have growing in them transplantable whole human organs. Uh, uh, and a third, sorry, fourth really important area might be uh, disease modeling. So you might want to create like a disease human model within an animal context. Maybe you want to have like, you know, a humanized liver that has a certain kind of disease and you put that into a, a lab animal and you do your research there. So, the, you know, there's a whole host of rationales for doing human cell mixing into the animal. And I think that for the public, you know, some are going to be more persuasive than others. When in the UK, when they did public consultation around uh, chimera research, what you typically heard again and again was, well, if this is going to somehow benefit patients, if it's somehow going to benefit people that I care about, then people tend to be more on board with it. If they don't get that part of it, if they just get like, you know, science is really interested in learning about X, Y, and Z, people are a little bit less tolerant of treading into and supporting very kind of uncomfortable research because, because then they think that you're just messing around with nature. Yes, Eric, I, I want to circle back on the, the issue of stem cells because that was... You know, back in the day, it was it's such a hot controversy, and you, yeah. you made a quick reference to to uh, iPS uh, stem cells. I just want to you know for the for our listeners kind of decode that because at the time, primary source of stem cells was their fetal stem cells. And you know, I remember at the time, first of all, there was there was a big ethical issue about the sourcing of the cells, but there was also you know kind of this divide between these extreme optimists who were th- saying we're gonna we're gonna cure Parkinson's as soon as we can do this research, and people on the extreme pessimist side who were saying you know we're gonna be harvesting babies for organs. It, it felt like it was a very kind of cartoonish. Yeah. on both sides. Yeah. How, how did that end up getting resolved? And, and how do you feel about the way it got resolved? Yeah, yeah, great. So let me, let me say a little bit about the cartoonish nature. I like the way you put it, kind of the cartoonish nature of that of that debate and then how it got resolved. So the cartoonish nature, I, I attribute actually largely to the fact that scientists and those who supported human embryonic stem cell research needed to drum up lots of political support for it. Why? Because they weren't getting NIH funding. You had to drum up either state money or private money. How are you gonna motivate voters or philanthropists to invest in funding human embryonic stem cell research in the United States if you're not gonna get NIH money or not very much of it? You have to make it compelling for them. You have to say, tell a story. This is the payoff. It's not just, honestly, a lot of stem cell research was just understanding development. It was understanding you know, the causes of disease. But what really got people's attention was, do you have somebody who suffers from diabetes? Well, this could one day provide replacement cells for someone like that. Um, so I can understand why some of the hype was driven is because you, you needed to, you know, you needed to fund your lab and feed your postdocs. You needed like financial support. And to do that, you had to sort of depend on the opinions of other people about the worth of your research. So I could understand how things ballooned up to that on the support side. On the, on the con side, um, this was so closely linked up to the pro-life and abortion debate because it was the use of human embryos. Typically what kind of moves the needle politically there is again, a little bit of hyperbole talking about murder, 
because there was lack of federal funding and, and, and sort of, you know, um, support by at the federal level for this research, you ended up having this war in the trenches between the cheerleaders, right, and the, and the demonizers. Of, of, so it kind of had this really unfortunate bifurcation of, of the dynamic. How did it get resolved? IPS cells. Right. I was wondering how much these IPS cells, these induced pluripotent cells, the adult cells that you can rewind mm-hmm. to, uh, to sort of an all-purpose all stem cell status, how much of that essentially was, was good luck that we were, you know, the, the technology came along that was able to diffuse the ethics issue without us having to really deal with the, the core issue. If, if we'd been stuck using only fetal embryonic stem cells, probably that, that ethics issue would have been a lot more acute. Well, well you know, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, uh, it was good timing. I don't know if it was good luck. Okay. And so let me explain the difference. So I, I've written with Chinya Yamanaka and, and I've uh, worked with him in the past. They were inspired by a uh, stem cell study that was actually privately funded done at Harvard. So they, they used non-NIH money at Harvard. They used private money to do an experiment where they fused human skin cells with human embryonic stem cells. And when they fused them together, this like gigantic fused cell in its entirety behaved like a human embryonic stem cell. So what Shinya thought was there must be something about the human stem cell that reprograms the the somatic cell to do what it does. Can we do that without fusing them together? Can we do that by kind of like just one at a time transferring over using viruses, these transcription factors that kind of, you know, are very active in the stem cell state. And so he couldn't have made iPS cells without knowledge gained from human embryonic stem cells. Okay. Inspired by that human embryonic stem cell study and also just leveraging the knowledge of what transcription factors are, are prevalent at the embryonic stem cell state. You only get that information by studying having years of experience with other labs with human embryonic stem cells. So it wasn't luck. It was riding off of knowledge that was rolling out through, you know, non-federal funded means using human embryonic stem cells. So it was a, it wasn't, it wasn't like a shot in the dark completely. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been really interesting to see kind of how the debate has evolved. There's not so much heat anymore about human embryonic stem cells. Now there's a lot of heat around human fetal tissue research. And right. Right. So from your perspective, you know, trying to develop an ethical framework for these things, how do you make that call? How, how, do, you, how do you decide at which point you're getting to something that activates the sensitivities of people who are concerned about, you know, experimentation with human embryos? Yeah. At least in the U.S., there's no way that people would actually be able to do the, the definitive experiment to answer the question, will this embryo model become a baby? So you can kind of infer the best you can from other data. And, you know, um, my feeling is, We've already kind of answered that question in a way in the past, and the NIH has in a way, uh, which is, uh, what does it mean to be a human embryo? And the way the NIH, in their guidance, what they follow is what's called the Dickey-Wicker Amendment, and that restricts federal funding for NIH for any experiments in which human embryos are created or harmed or destroyed in the process, okay? So, and then when you look at the Dickey-Wicker Amendment, you ask, well, how do you define a human embryo? It's very broad. It's basically anything that will make a baby. It could be the product of fertilization, it could be like nuclear transfer, like the Dolly technique, or anything made of human diploid cells. Well, that last claim, anything made of human diploid cells, that could be IPS cells, it could be, you know, it's embryo models. So I think more and more now, not just in the US, but in other countries, they're defining a human embryo, not by how did you create it, but what can it do, okay? So if that's the definition, then it's almost like not really a question anymore of like, you know, do you treat like natural IVF embryos differently from these other constructs? I think they would all be considered embryos if it could be thought that they could produce 
pregnancies and, and babies. Um, so I think that basically just to be on the safe side, we ought to just kind of, if it's developmentally kind of has everything there, you think it should follow whatever policies we have currently for embryo research using natural IVF embryos. Yeah. So you just touched on an interesting point, which is, I guess, wh- where the source ethics comes from for making you know, bioethical decisions. You mentioned earlier, you know, there are a lot of different communities with a lot of different value systems that they bring to bear. Ultimately, is your responsibility to deal with ethics as it's been sorted out at the legislative level of the national federal level? And it's once there's sort of an agreed upon moral standard, is that what you use as your baseline? What I would say is when you do bioethics, you can sort of you could be doing it kind of either more at the scholarly level or at more at the policy level. So at the scholarly level, I mean, I could sit around all day, you know, in my office and come up with the best arguments for how to think about these embryos and their moral status and, and generate, you know, my conclusions, right? But that's not how policy is made. So, so there are two separate things going on here. So one issue is sort of like, how does a bioethicist work? On, like, what does it mean to do bioethics in, it, in this area? One of them would be just, you know, Write an argument, write an analysis that you think is kind of puts best forward your own thinking on this issue. And you publish it and other people discuss it. So that's fine. But that actually doesn't impact policy. The way policy goes is some people people might read for background some of these articles, but there is going to be some process. And it depends on the policy that you're talking about uh, for policy formation. Our processes, you have an international task force. And there's a whole process that we use there, but that's different than like what the state of Michigan might use for state legislation. So I think there are two separate things. One is sort of like, what do you think should be the process by which we have laws or regulations around research? And, you know, we ought to follow those policies. Maybe they ought to be ideally informed by the best arguments that people can think of. I guess that's part of what I'm wondering is, I mean, do you find that sometimes you live in two worlds? You live in a, in a world of, of your personal morality and a, and a world of institutional morality in which yeah, there may be something that at an institutional level you see can't be done, even though you personally would like to see it happen or, or vice versa, where you kind of have to separate yourself as an individual from, from yourself as, you know, as an ethicist trying to think of a society level decision. Yeah, does that happen? And how do you? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's not like a sense of like, disconnect or dissonance between like my academic work and how I feel about it and kind of limitations that that are just around me right now around policy. I do, maybe it's just because I've had a little bit of a track record of having some influence on policy from like what I've written. Uh, So a really good example of this was um, getting back to the cloning debate, right? So the reason why we didn't have enough eggs for any kind of experiments for research cloning or otherwise it's because you weren't allowed to pay women for uh, research participation for donating the eggs. So nobody would do this for free. Like women who've had some experience donating their eggs for IVF knew that in that context, if, uh, if that was going for an IVF clinic, they would get you know minimum $5,000 for their, their effort and all the pain and everything they had to go through. And then you know other policies came out that said you can't, for example, California, all the California state funding said that it would be illegal to uh, pay women for time, effort, and inconvenience for egg donation. Uh, so nobody stepped forward, you know, and nobody did it. So I wrote a commentary in Nature where I argued that uh, there's good reason to pay research participants in that saying like you would for anybody else who undergoes as a healthy volunteer an invasive procedure for basic research. And what ended up happening was New York State used that paper to kind of like come up with their own policy. And they said they would allow compensation for time, effort, and inconvenience in New York State. So then researchers actually moved there to kind of get 
get their hands on human eggs and do all kinds of like research where you need, you know, viable human eggs to do this. Um, so that ended up having some impact on science because even though people said at the time, nobody's going to allow compensation, that the, the movement is toward no compensation, there are so less, you know, pockets here and there where people were persuaded and they actually didn't move the research forward. So that's, you know, maybe it's because I've had that kind of background and experience that I don't feel like I'm kind of shouting, yeah, you know, shouting into the wind and kind of, you know, out to the void and there's no impact because I think there, there has been now with this latest science paper on the 14 day limit. I also think that's potentially an area where people might look at that and say, well, we're going to kind of use this as a starting off point for revisiting our policies and forming a new one. So, you know, I'm, Actually, I'm not, yeah. can you, can you summarize your, your argument there with it, with the 14 day limit? Yeah. You know, so what we say is that there seems to be a good reason, scientific merit for exploring that 14 day period and just a little bit beyond it, because a lot of, a lot of good can come from unlocking that that stage of development when, uh, you know, lots of pregnancies fail, when birth defects start to form. And so the current 14-day limit was, you know, done at a time when the technology just wasn't there. And even some of the questions that people have in mind were really at the forefront. But now we have to reevaluate that. And I think that instead of lifting it completely for everybody and have a free-for-all, uh, we ought to keep the 14-day limit as a default policy, but there ought to be an appeals process and let some very few qualified teams with very close monitoring explore just a little bit beyond and report back the results and then decide you know, incrementally whether it's worth it to keep going beyond this point, whether that information is useful, it's valid. Um, but yeah, so this is just kind of an incremental approach and it kind of says, you know, nobody says that you have to either keep it the way it is or completely open it up. I think the, the more reasonable approach is the appeals process, the exceptions here and there. In terms of where we are now, I mean, what, what do you see as the, I mean, the biggest areas of ethical concern with with embryo editing? I mean, people people love to talk about it and worry about it. I'm kind of curious of what sort of what you know what what your thoughts are there and whether you consider that a, a premature thing to worry about at this stage. I mean, I you know it's really interesting to me like when all this sort of bubbling up in like 2015, 2016, and then leading up to the the whole disclosure by the Chinese scientists about the, the, the two babies people continue to kind of divide up gene editing into three categories and they're kind of i would say um identified as ethically more more contentious um depending on which category but i think they got it all backwards so, so let me just say what the categories categories are somatic cell gene editing so this is like change the genes of somebody who has like a liver disorder somebody a living person a patient who may get some kind of genetic change for their own therapeutic benefit. So somatic cell, but that doesn't get passed on to future generations. Then you have two forms of germline engineering. One is just in vitro only for research. And then you have reproductive uses of germline therapy. So you got case one, which is somatic cell, and then two versions of germline. And, th and the middle version is really not that contentious because it's just embryos in a dish. And then the other one is gonna be, you know, Dr. Hayes experiments of like actually getting babies so typically people say the first category is like, you know, not that ethically controversial. Second one, maybe a little bit more because they're embryos, but not as much as the third one, which is involving like teacher generations and human lives and babies. But actually, I, I, I would reorder the, uh, the, the ethical controversy. I actually think that the somatic soul engineering stuff is uh, probably deserves a lot more ethical scrutiny and discussion than currently has been given. Because you there you have the possibility of poorly designed clinical trials or too early introduction into humans uh, and lots of terrible things happening to real people, right? Human subjects or, or patients. 
In the case of the, the middle one of the germline in a dish only, I think that the real issue there is kind of there's no oversight for embryo research in the US and there's no payment for a woman. You need eggs to do this and there's no payment there. The third category, the most controversial one about, you know, baby making and designer babies, like that's right. so, unless somebody completely violated the law and we already have mechanisms to punish people for violating the law, like you're not going to see that anytime soon because FDA has to approve these kinds of protocols. Like you can't just, just do what Dr. Hay did in, in the U.S. and get away with it. So I just don't think that that's like anything that's going to be a reality in, in, in the foreseeable future. And before we wrap the conversation, I, I want to come back to uh, to brain organoids. That's another topic that the pop culture concerns are maybe pretty far removed from the immediate ethics concerns because the pop culture concerns are certainly, you know, what if you create a conscious brain in a jar and are you responsible for it? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very far out idea. What are your kind of most immediate concerns with organoids? One that I think is really interesting is sort of how best to communicate your research to the public and even it gets to the level of like there are technicians or researchers that work in these brain organoid labs and they have to interact sometimes with patient families because they, they want to make like a brain organoid model from cells by somebody who has an undiagnosed neurological disorder or like a pediatric sample of a child that's a really serious neurological disorder and they want to make brain organoids from that so there's suddenly for these basic stem cell biologists like a need to interact with patients and families and they ask lots of questions about like these brain organoids and, and they want to know like, you know, will our donation of our loved one's cells somehow help them or will it help other people? And there's a lot of emotion built in and some of these researchers are just not prepared. How do you balance the sort of like the interest that you have in this field without like stirring up false hopes in these other people and, and communicate, you know, um, what, it, what the research can or cannot do? So that's kind of an interesting challenge. It's not like a, you know, it's not like a super hot button ethical issue, but it is one that I think weighs on the minds and on the hearts of people who are actually doing the research. But um, but the other the other areas that I think are really fascinating to start thinking about is um, there are questions about you know sort of how long should you preserve the human brain organ? Are there, are there any uses that are sort of off limits for this? So these are kind of the questions that I think are kind of more near term. So if you think about the next five years, right. it's not consciousness. It's kind of like how best do we move forward with the research so that we can make sure that the consent is adequate, that we can make sure that, you know, communication with patients and families is adequate, and that we have a clear idea of what, what limits, if any, there are on bioengineering, what you can do with these things. Yeah, and, and, do you, and do you imagine that there there will be like a certain level of organized electrical activity, a certain level of complexity of connectivity yeah. that that people say, yeah, this is this is sort of the the level that is okay for an organoid, and beyond that, that that's sort of our, our equivalent of the fourteen day limit for an organoid. <laughs> right, right. It's going to be so like greater degrees of complexity and and completeness will start to trigger more and more scrutiny because right now you know brain organizes we kind of said in our piece like they're they're very rudimentary they're they're not going to model the entire brain but people are getting really good at putting them together so so even though you can't culture from scratch the entire brain you can assemble it and then they actually form connections right so biology will continue to surprise us with how plastic it is that, that that's what's astonishing so it's going to be unpredictable and it continues to escape what we normally think about the world because um that's always based on the natural kinds and natural categories. And these are so far outside of that, but kind of tug on our intuitions about what we want to say about persons and what we want to say about, you know, about life. That uh, it's gonna it's gonna keep us busy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
More about this research is available online at americanscientist.org. This has been a podcast from American Scientist, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Corey S. Powell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.